Amen. If I would divide this portion of Scripture into two parts, it would literally be the witnesses of God and the assurance of God. The first, uh, from verse 6 through basically 11, we're going to see that word witness and testimony over and over and over again. I don't know if any of you are into Judge Judy, right, or Matlock back in the day, or if you like uh, lawyers or attorneys on television. But we're going to see almost a court of law being brought to our attention. And in a sense, Jesus is the one that we're looking to see if he's the one true way into heaven or not. And John's going to bring all these different witnesses up to the stand to show us that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And then at the end of it, verse 12 and 13, it's going to reveal to us that if we believe this, we should have an assurance in our life. We should be able to know that we know the moment we die in this life, we're going to be waking up in life eternal. We should walk around with that assurance. Sometimes people, they, they give us a story. They tell us something that happened, and you might believe them or you might not, depending on how much you trust them, how trustworthy they really are, how their track record has been. Growing up, I think many of us, we've heard that story of the boy who cried wolf, right? He cried wolf. He got lots of attention. He liked the attention, so he cried wolf again and again and again. Then the wolf actually came. He cried wolf. Nobody came, and he got eaten, right? Lots of these kids' stories are pretty cruel if you really think about it, right? But that's what happens to this boy that's always crying wolf. Some of us, we have that friend who has all these incredible fish stories, but no pictures of the fish, right? You don't know how much you could really believe them or trust them, right? Maybe you're into golf and they shot this crazy game, but they have no pictures of anything. So if it's a trustworthy person, oftentimes we believe them. But if they're not a trustworthy person, if they're always messing around, can't really believe them or trust them. It reminds me, I know I've said this story before, but uh, my youngest son, Luke, he's three years old, but that guy likes messing around with people all the time. So you can't always really take him seriously. And we were preparing for the men's steak and study, had 100 steaks at the house, vacuum sealed, wrapped, or doing all this work, and he's laughing, he's joking. He goes, Ella has some steaks. So at first, Amanda, she's laughing. <laughs> and she goes, no, Ella has some steaks. I goes, what? Ella, do you have steaks? And Ella just stays quiet, right? Sure enough, you go to Ella's room, she has two vacuum-sealed ribeyes under her pillow, right? <laughs> and we just couldn't take Luke for his work because he's always messing around. If you ask him how old he is, he'll probably tell you that he's 11 years old. Why? I have no clue. He just likes messing around with people. So if we trust people who are sinful, who are fallen, who lie all the time, how much more should we trust God and the witness of God and the testimony of God? In ancient times, when Israel was developing as a, as a country, as a nation, God gave them some rules in when to take someone's testimony and now take that and now bring the law out and now bring the punishment out for what transpired. There was no CCTV, there were no cameras, no one had camera phones, right? So you can't just take the witness of one person versus another. You can just write these scriptures down. Deuteronomy 17 verse 6, God told, tells the nation of Israel... Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. In Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, the same idea. God tells them, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. 
To, so in order to solve the he said, she said, they said, all the back and forth, you need to, to at least have two to three witnesses to really bring something into court. And now for us to remember the context of 1 John, John's dealing with a bunch of crazy doctrines, a bunch of heresies, a bunch of people claiming that this is the real Jesus, and this is the real Jesus, and this is the real Jesus. And here John is going to go back to this theme that Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully man, and Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah of the world. It's not simply a spirit that comes on and off a of man, but it is who he is. If you would, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, this is how John starts off the whole book. He's speaking about Jesus. And he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says, That which was from the beginning... Which we have heard, again he's talking about Jesus, they heard him speak. Which we have seen with our eyes, they saw him. Which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, right? They touched the holes in his hands, they ate the bread and the juice that he broke in front of them. Verse, and the verse 1, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and we bear witness and we declare to you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you. That you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. So again all of this is John battling these false teachers. Battling these heresies. He's Writing this letter to this church, some people think it's a church in Ephesus, and he's writing this letter to warn them about these heresies and false doctrines going out there. So we talked about one witness, we talked about two to three witnesses. Here, John, he's going to mention five different witnesses to show that Jesus was and is the Christ. In verse 7, he's going to mention the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. There in verse 9, he's going to mention the witness of men. And later on in verse 10, it's going to be mentioning the witness of men who believe. That the Spirit himself is in, the man, in a man or woman that believes. And the Spirit in us bears witness of who Jesus was and is and is to come. So back to 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. We start now. It says, this is he, speaking of Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Again, John, he's speaking of Jesus and he makes a big deal saying he came by water and blood, not water only. Here John is speaking of the importance of Jesus' baptism and of Jesus' crucifixion. In this time period, there was a man by the name of Cyrenius of Ephesus, and he was teaching that Jesus was simply the anointing of God. Jesus, he was just a normal, uh, normal human being, and sorry, the Christ was an anointing of God. So Jesus, he was just a normal human being walking around, and at his baptism, the Christos came upon him, and at the crucifixion, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that apparently God took the Christos after, off of him so that then he would die for mankind as just a man. And this was heresy. This still is heresy. And John is battling this and clearing this up for the believers that he's writing to. 
And one thing we can take from this morning's Bible study is that if we have people that we love and care about and they're listening to heresy, they're listening to false doctrine, if we really love them, we should warn them and talk with them about it and try to sit down and go to God's word as the ultimate authority and not myself and any other speaker out there. If we really love them and we see all throughout 1 John, John will often say, my little children, my little children, you got to get this. Those people, it's a heresy. It's a false doctrine that's going to take you down a bad path. So he points to not only Jesus' baptism, but also his death. We know at Christ's baptism, there John the Baptist looks at him and says, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then as he's being baptized, Luke 3 verse 22, it tells us the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form as a dove upon him. And then a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. We know Jesus himself spoke of the importance of water baptism. You could turn to John chapter 3, if you would. If your fingers are tired, you could just stay put there in 1 John. But in John chapter 3... Verse 5 through 7, Jesus is speaking with one of the Pharisees. He's speaking with Nicodemus. Again, here you see the mercy and kindness of Jesus. Nicodemus wanted to speak with him at night, away from everybody. Jesus doesn't put him on blast. He doesn't say, hey, no, you have to talk to me in an open crowd. He says, hey, I'll meet with you alone at night. And there, John chapter 3, verse 5 through 7, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water... And the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Again, Jesus is speaking of the importance of being water baptized and being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that all begins with being born again. We have to be born again. Our old life is dead and gone, and now we're born again in the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit living inside each and every one of us. When Jesus was on the cross, in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, he still has the relationship and friendship with God there. The moment when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because at that moment, Jesus has all the sins of mankind upon him. And because our God is holy, because he's light, he can't look upon the sins. So that's the first time in all of eternity that the Trinity, in a sense, was broken and they did not have fellowship with one another. Finally, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, it tells us, But with his own blood, speaking of Jesus, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So again, John here, he's dealing with these heretics face to face he's writing to the people he loves and he says you guys can't believe this this is wrong these guys do not have your best interests in mind and in heart they're trying to take you down a wrong path so how do we apply this today right anybody know of anyone by the name of Cyrenius right anybody know anybody from Ephesus right No, we don't have these specific heresies or false doctrines going around today but we have many many other ones right yeah, people trying to say Jesus is the mark is a is an archangel. Jesus and Satan, they're like twins separated at birth, and now they're battling for the rest of their lives. 
Jesus isn't the son of God, right? We have all these heresies. We need to be bringing the light out, bringing the truth out, especially with the people we love and care about. Jesus was not just a prophet. He wasn't just a good man. He's not Satan's brother. He's not just a form of God. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we believe anything other than that, you're believing in a false Jesus. You're believing in a false Christ. One of the biggest heresies and false doctrines we have going around today, it's prosperity gospel, prosperity doctrine. Again, show me in scripture where Jesus died on the cross so that I could have a Bentley. I I just don't see it. Show me the chapter and verse, right? He didn't die on the cross so that I could have everything in this life, that everything in my life would be smooth and painless. He did not die and resurrect so that I could have perfect health. Because then Paul would have had perfect health. He wouldn't have been praying and asking, Lord, please take this away from me. Take this away from me. Timothy would have had perfect health. Paul wouldn't have had to tell him, hey, take a little bit of wine. Take a little medicine to help your stomach. That's not what the gospel is about. So we need to go by what God's word says and not by what a man or any religious or religious institution tells us. We need to go to God's word and see what God's word reveals to us about Jesus. And again, just for us to use common sense every once in a while, right? It's really great to have. Every once in a while, the, the guys, they play basketball oh, one Saturday a month. And man, imagine if there's a guy on the sideline saying, six foot seven, six foot seven, six foot seven, six foot seven. Hey, man, what are you doing? I'm naming and I'm claiming it, right? I want to dunk on someone today before the end of the men's basketball. So I'm just crying out to God and he's going to give me whatever I ask. That's zero common sense. You'd be praying for him for different reasons, right? Lord, I pray my brother, you put him in his right mind. I pray you'd help him, be with his wife, be with his kids. Or you'd be praying other things. But again, for us to sometimes use common sense when it comes to God's word and doctrine, we need to go by God's word and by the spirit. At the end of verse 6, that's what it says. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. The Holy Spirit himself bears witness that Jesus was and is the Christ. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Again, that's the Holy Spirit's role within the Trinity. He testifies of Christ. He draws us to Christ. He softens our heart to Christ. That's the whole role of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 13 through 15, again, if you're quick, you could turn there. If not, you could stay put. John chapter 16. Verse 13 through 15. Jesus, again, speaking here. He says, however, when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will, make, he will take of mine and declare it unto you. So again, what we see here is that the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit are all in agreement in who Jesus was and is and is to come. 
Charles Spurgeon, he makes such a great point. We've been going through Leviticus on Wednesdays. And he says, a priest was always ordained by sacrificial blood, cleansing water, and the oil that speaks of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus also has these three witnesses to his priestly ministry. Again, all of these witnesses, they all point to the same truth. Jesus is the Christ. Now in verse 7 and 8, for you that really like to dig deep in God's word and uh, like to look at the manuscripts and different things like that, here's one of the portions of scriptures where some questions kind of cry out the more that you dig in. And before we go in here, just some some simple truths for us to be reminded about, right? Jesus was around 2,000 years ago. I know if some of us, we, we forget or we fail to think Jesus was not an American. We all know that. We all believe that. Jesus did not speak English. He did not speak Spanish. He did not speak King James Version with ETHs, right? And thou's and these. He did not speak like that. So Jesus, he was a Jewish man. He was an Israelite. And when he spoke, he spoke in ancient Hebrew, a language that we really don't have today. Right now we have a new Hebrew that's been put back together. So Jesus, he spoke in ancient Hebrew, and he spoke mostly in Aramaic. That's how he spoke. And now the writers, when they write down the New Testament, they take ancient Hebrew and ancient Aramaic, and now they write it down in ancient Greek. Anybody here read ancient Greek or read ancient Hebrew? Right? So now we take this, and that got translated to Latin and to different languages, and then finally it came to the English versions that we have today. So there's two main manuscripts that we take. One is Latin and one is Greek. So in one of these manuscripts, there's a certain set of words in verse 7 and 8. And in another set of manuscripts, there's another set of words in 7 and 8. We all have different Bible versions. And for the most part, I'm fine with that, right? How many of you read King James and New King James Version? Good amount of us here. How many of you use ESV? Some of us here. Anybody use NASB? Some of us here, right? All different types of Bible versions. And we have to be careful. Sometimes people get hung up and they say King James Version only, right? That is the only anointed version of the Bible. And even if you speak Spanish, you can only read from the King James Version, right? Some people say, no, no, you have to read ESV or NASB. We have to be careful with that. I, meant, I forgot to mention it at the morning service, but the Christians in Afghanistan, they don't argue about manuscripts and King James Version only. The Christians in China, they're not battling about which Bible version you use. In fact, they rip out a portion of Scripture, they memorize it, and then they give it to another brother so that they can memorize it. One of the reasons we argue about this in America is we just have too much free time. We just have too much comfort. So again, for you men, read the Bible that you have and do your best to be obedient to it. New King James, King James, ESV, NASB, NIV, read whatever version, but do your best to be obedient to it. Don't get hung up on all these things. Uh, One of the pastors we love, uh, Jimmy O'Keefe, he would read through a different Bible version every year. So one year King James, next year New King James, next year Nazri, next year ESV. Again, taking God's word and be reminded, Jesus, he's not sitting there, right? Some of our Bibles, they're from Cambridge. Jesus is not sitting there in England typing out the Bible, right? And saying, okay, here's your version. And typing out another version, hanging out. We got all of this and it all takes faith. It takes faith to believe this. At its very core, it takes faith. So if you have King James Version or New King James Version 7 and 8, it should read like this. 
For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. If you have ESV, NASB, or NIV, it should read, For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three are in one agreement. Again, the ancient Greek manuscripts didn't have the larger portion. The ancient Latin manuscripts did have this other portion. Some people believe that it was added in later on to give a better emphasis on the Trinity. And some believe that it was in there all along. Should this shake our faith? Not really. Because if you believe it was in there all along, you're completely fine and you're okay. If you don't believe it was in there and it was added on in ancient history, don't worry. The Trinity and Jesus' oneness with God is mentioned all over Scripture. If you would, we could turn real quick to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus hammers this down over and over and over again. And the Pharisees were the one that had a big problem with Jesus continually speaking about him and God being one. John chapter 5, verse 18. It says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. So they were bothered that, that he was speaking this. Then in verse 23, He says that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 26 and verse 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Again, we don't need 1 John 5 to talk about the Trinity. The Trinity is all throughout Scripture. If you reference 1 John 5, I believe, to Jehovah's Witnesses in their back pocket, they'll say, hey, that's not in the ancient manuscripts. They'll be able to tell that to you. A couple other Scriptures you could write down. John chapter 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. We are one. We're the same. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I And the Father are one. So this is all over Scripture. In fact, there's also at least another 16 portions of Scripture that point to the Trinity. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equals with different roles. And that's all throughout Scripture. And if you want those passages, I could give them to you afterwards if you really want them. Uh, But David Guzik, he comments on this. He says, passages like this give us no reason to fear that our New Testaments are unreliable. In the entire New Testament, there's only 50 passages which have any sort of questioning regarding the manuscripts and reliability of the text. And none of these are a sole foundation for any Christian doctrine or belief. If 50 passages sounds like a lot to you, look at it this way. No more than one out of every thousand texts is in question at all. So again, we can trust God's word. Wouldn't you trust someone if you could completely trust them 99, 999 times out of 1,000? 
I wish our politicians were that honest, right? 999 times out of 1,000, we can trust the reliability of God's word. And if you listen to Joe Foge on 1 John 5, he's going to go on for seven minutes straight telling you why this text belongs here no matter what. So if you like that type of stuff, man, you could go listen to him. It was great. At the end of the day, family, you got to have faith. Got to have faith. That's the only way we come to God. You're not going to come to God by understanding him more. You're not going to come to God by researching him more. You're not going to come to God by knowing him more intellectually. The only way you're going to really come to know him is by having that faith like a child. That's the way you're going to know him. Right? I think it was today I was reading on that passage of scripture that we can have the peace that goes beyond all understanding. You're not going to have that peace by just studying more and more and more and more and more and more. That's not how that peace comes. That peace comes by having that relationship with God and then you're able to trust him all the more. So I hope that made sense to you. Verse 9 and 10. Now he says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. In Matthew 16, Jesus, he poses two questions. He poses a question to all his disciples, and then he poses a question specifically to each of his disciples. And this is a question each of us, we need to answer. In Matthew 16, verse verse 13, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? What do other people say about me? What's the word on the street? What are they putting on their social media, right? What does Reddit have to say about me? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, which is utter nonsense, right? John the Baptist and Jesus, they were cousins. John the Baptist baptized Jesus, so can't be the same guy, right? Some say you're Elijah. Others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So that was the word on the street. But then he turns and he looks at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And I encourage you, if, you have, if you're taking notes, write that down. Who do you, or rather, what does your life have to say about what you believe and who you believe that Jesus is? What does your life have to say about your true belief in Christ and who he is? That's the answer every single human will have to answer. And here in verse 16, we see that Peter, he has the witness in himself because in verse 16, Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what do you have to say about Jesus? Who do you think that he is? Is he your self-help coach, right? Is he just that creepy guy in the paintings in your abuela's house? Right? Who is he? Is he that guy you bring out during Christmas, little baby, never grows up, he just sits there, right? Pull him out, put him back in. Who do you say that Jesus is? Peter had this witness in himself and the Holy Spirit spoke through him. I hope for each and every one of us that's who we are. In Romans 8 verse 16 and 17 it it tells us the same thing. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you know that you're a son or daughter of God? Do you know that you know that? Are you struggling with that here this morning, this afternoon? Do you know that you're going to heaven when you die? If you get hit in in a car accident, if you have an aneurysm right now, would you have no shadow of a doubt that you're going to see Jesus face to face? 
Harry Ironside, in his biography uh, called Ordained of the Lord, he's a famous Bible teacher. He pastored at uh, Moody Church in Chicago, and it gives us this incredible story. Uh, one day, the Salvation Army, they're out on the street, and there's a group of them, and they're sharing testimonies, they're street preaching, and someone notices Harry walking by and says, Mr. Ironside, would you come and would you share with us, and would you give your testimony? So he agrees, and he's sharing, he's giving the gospel, he's sharing his testimony, and then all of a sudden, this man that's well-dressed, looks very proper, he comes to him, and he slips him a note, and Harry, he reads the note, and it says, Sir... I challenge you to debate with me the question of Gnosticism versus Christianity in the Academy of the Science Hall next Sunday at 4 p.m. I will pay all expenses. Harry goes on to read the, the card out loud to the whole group. And he says, okay, sir, I agree to have this debate with you, but you have to promise me two things. To show that this is a debate worth having. So the first thing that you have to do is bring at least one man who for years was known as a down and outer. Someone who was an outcast from society, whether he was a drunkard or a criminal or another victim of any sensual appetite. A man who for years was under the power of some evil habit, but he could not deliver himself from it. But listening to you speak glorifying Gnosticism and denouncing the Bible and Christianity, hearing you speak, his heart and his mind were so deeply stirred that he left that meeting saying, I, from here on, am an agnostic. And with that power and embracing that philosophy, he found a new power to defeat his former lifestyle. That's the first thing you got to do. Second thing you got to do is bring me a woman. Bring me a woman who was also a down and outer who was once poor, wretched, a characterless outcast, the slave of a degrading passion and the victim of man's corrupt living. Perhaps that woman lived for years at a notorious resort, a specific place in downtown. But upon hearing you speak of being an agnostic, her heart was turned and she said, this is what I need to be delivered from the slavery of sin. If you bring me this man and woman, I agree to debate with you, and I'll bring a hundred people. I'll bring a hundred men and women that were once those who were stuck in those degrading passions and hearing about the power and the gospel of Christ, their lives have been forever changed. Family, that's the power each and every one of us have, that upon hearing the word of God, our lives, I hope your life has been changed. That you were once that person stuck to these passions, stuck in your sins. You did all you could to get out of your own way. And yet there was no way out until you gave your life to Christ. And hopefully since then, your life's been changed. You've been renewed. You once were blind, right? But now you can see. Hopefully that's each and every one of our testimonies. It continues on. It says, his opponent, who at least had some sense of humor, he smiled and he waved it off walking away from the crowd. Family, do you have this testimony living inside of you? Do you have this testimony that your neighbors, your brothers and sisters, your family, your coworkers are asking you, what has changed in your life? Each and every one of us, we should have that testimony. We should be a living, walking testimony, and the Holy Spirit should be crying out inside each and every one of us. He continues there, and he says, he who does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. John, he's pretty cut and dry sometimes. He says, if you don't believe in God, you're calling God a liar. If you don't believe Jesus is the Christ, he's the only way to heaven, you're calling God a liar. This isn't the first time he says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Separate subject, but the same point. 1 John 1, verse 9 and 10, he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We have to be careful that we are not making God a liar, whether we're saying that we're sinless, we've never sinned, we're not that bad, I'm a good person, or if we're saying there's other ways to heaven. If I just live really nicely, I'll get into heaven. If I donate to orphans, if I serve at Calvary Chapel, Miami, right, I'll be able to get into heaven. You are calling God a liar. If you were at the married couples retreat and you were able to hear uh, Pastor Malcolm and his wife Carol's testimony, I loved it so much. They were young and they were talking with these pastors. They weren't saved yet. So they're talking with Carol and saying, Carol, you're a sinner. You got to repent from your sins. You got to cry out to God. And she goes, I'm not a sinner. But my husband's over there. If you want to talk to him, he's a sinner. You go, and some of us, that's the way we are. Someone comes in, shares the gospel, and says, hey, you're a sinner. You need to repent. Me? I'm a good person. I don't know what you're talking about. I've never done this. I've never done that. I mean, look at these terrible people, right? I mean, compared to Hitler, Osama bin Laden, I'm great. What are you talking about? We have to be careful because that creeps in. Our pride loves that. Our pride doesn't want to say, I deserve hell for all of eternity. But if that's not what we're saying, we're making God a liar. The next thing here is that if we're saying there's another way to heaven, that God did not send his only begotten son, Jesus, to die on our behalf, taking the penalty for our sins to give us the only way to eternal life. When we constantly reject accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, not only are we calling him a liar... But truly, this is the only sin that God will not forgive. You live your whole life continually rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ. There's no forgiveness for this unless you humble yourself and say, okay, I accept Christ. Right? What sends people to hell? Is it murder? Is it sex? Is it lying? No. What sends people to hell is rejecting Jesus Christ and his blood being shed for our sins. Because many of us, that was our past life. We were a murderer. We were a sinner. We were in sexual immorality. But then we accepted him. We accepted his sacrifice. And we said, God, what you have to say about Jesus is true. Charles Spurgeon, he says, The great sin of not believing in the Lord Christ is often spoken of very lightly and with a very trifling spirit, as though it were scarcely a sin at all. Yet according to my text... And indeed, according to the whole tenor of Scripture, unbelief is the giving of God the lie. And what can be worse? Imagine calling God a liar. And yet every human that does not accept Jesus Christ as Lord, that's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, God, you're a liar. You don't love me. You didn't send your son to die for me. I'm not a sinner. I'm not that bad. There's no heaven. There's no hell. We're making God a liar. Charles Spurgeon, he continues on, on that person that says, I want to believe, but I just can't. 
I want to believe. I'm trying to hard to believe. But I just can't. Charles Spurgeon says, hearken, O unbeliever, you have said, I cannot believe. But it would be more honest if you had said, I will not believe. Again, there's many people that don't want to believe in Jesus Christ and in God the Father because then there's a greater authority than mankind. Then there's someone that each and every human being has to answer to. We have to answer to him, his design for life. We have to answer to morality. If there's no God, there's no morality. I can do whatever I want. This is what I feel is right. I feel like the house you bought belongs to me, so that's morally right to me. There's no God, there's no morals, and that's why our world, our sinful world, is constantly trying to take God out of everything it can. If there is a God, and there is, if Jesus is the Christ, and he is, then we have to answer to him. We have to answer to him for our lying. We have to answer to him for our disobedience to parents. We have to talk to him and answer to him about our sexual misconduct, about our ripping apart the truth of what marriage is. Of what gender truly is, one man and one woman, male and female. We have to answer them for our alcoholism, our drugs, our addictions, and even our fears. So that's why we have to be careful when we say, I'm trying so hard to believe, but I just can't. That's not the truth. You just don't want to have to answer to God for your sinful life. That's the truth of the matter. Again, may we trust the Lord. Mark chapter 3 Verse 28 and 29, it's a scary verse. People always ask about this verse. Verse 29, it says, But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. This is just like the question a sixth grader asks at at youth camp, right? What does this mean, right? And it's just a person that's constantly rejecting the Holy Spirit, trying to draw you to Christ, trying to draw you to the Lord. Trying to draw you to the reality of who Jesus is and who we are. Verse 11, 1 John 5, it says, And this is his testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. John warned us about taking the testimony of a man over the testimony of God. And now John, he's revealing to us exactly what God's testimony is. A couple of verses, you could just write this down, kind of, Rapid fire, John chapter 1 verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Again, the only way you're going to see clearly in this life is if you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way things are going to be clear. In John chapter 11 verse 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And finally, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, God's word is so simple. It just takes humility to accept it. We all have a debt we cannot pay because of our sins, because of our nature, because of our battling with God. And now he sends his only begotten son, Jesus. He comes, he lives a perfect life, and he dies for us, taking our place, taking our penalty, and then he resurrects, and he's the only way to heaven. 
He certainly is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to heaven apart from him. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. You could go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's important portion of scripture for us. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. So important for us regarding the testimony of God, which is the gospel. It's the good news. This is the hope that we have. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 12. Here Paul, he's writing a letter to his son in the faith, Timothy. And look how he has to encourage him. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us, and he's now called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Family, have you been ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? Have you been ashamed of the gospel? Have you been too fearful to share it with someone? Don't get down on yourself. That's what Timothy was going through. If not, Paul would not have to encourage him to not be ashamed, right? You don't tell someone who's not ashamed, hey, hey, don't be ashamed. No, that's not how it goes. So again, if Paul's having to encourage Timothy, again, each and every one of us, we have to be encouraged to not be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of this testimony. Share this with other people, even if we have to go through suffering because of it. Every pastor I talk to, every pastor I respect, they all say the same thing. What should the church be ready for? Persecution. Bad news bears. But that's what every pastor I talk to says. What should Christians be ready for? Persecution. That's what we should be ready for. Are we going to become ashamed of the gospel? Are we going to say, God, you've called me to be 007 Christian, right? I'm going to wear a suit. No one's going to know I'm a believer except you and me, right? We know we got this. No. We should not be ashamed. We, he has saved us, and now he's given us a holy calling to go around the whole world and preach the gospel. He tells this to them, knowing in Rome they're going to be put to death because of the gospel. Knowing they're going to be fed to lions because they did not bow down to Caesar, but they bowed down to the Lord. So how much more should we not be ashamed of this testimony of our Lord? Again, family, be encouraged in this. Share the gospel with others. And I know it's scary. Share with your family, with your friends, with your barber. Remember, I was talking to my barber about the gospel, and then he asked me, and I started talking to him about the rapture. I was like, this guy's either going to think I'm a lunatic, or the Holy Spirit's going to be softening his heart and speaking to him. And he's going to be reaffirming and confirming things he's been hearing during this season. And the thing is, you won't know that unless you're the messenger that he's called you to be. So again, may we not be ashamed of the gospel. Verse 12, 1 John 5, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son 
of God does not have life. Again, I love John, so cut and dry at times. Here in the ancient manuscripts, literally what he's saying is he who has the Son capitalized has the life capitalized. He who does not have the Son capitalized does not have the life. Again, family, if you don't have a friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't have life. You don't have life in this life, and you don't have life in the life to come. Again, this is the promise that we have. We need Jesus Christ in our heart, and then he gives us life now and life eternally. Adam Clark, he says, it is vain to expect eternal glory if we do not have Christ in our heart. This is God's record. Let no man deceive himself here. And in dwelling Christ, you have glory. No indwelling, no indwelling Christ, no glory. It's as simple as that. If you don't have a friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to heaven. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, what's more of the good news for us? It's not that God wants us to be mopey and whiny and crying in this life. And then, oh, then I'm going to have eternal life. Once I die, that's when my life's going to begin. But until we get there, I'm going to look like I got baptized in vinegar and lemon juice, right? I didn't get baptized at the beach. I got baptized in a bowl of lemon juice, right? And some believers, that's the way they walk around. They're always mopey. They're always crying. They're always sad. It's not life and that abundantly coming out of their life. It's just mopiness and regret and bitterness and looking at the past. That's the only thing that's coming out of their lives. Family, the moment we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have received eternal life. You have it now. It's not something that we're going to get later on. It's not an IOU that the moment you die, he goes, oh, here, here's your eternal life. No, if you're saved, you have eternal life in you right now. But we need to allow that to develop and grow within us. A.R. Fawcett, he says, faith is the mean whereby the regenerate have Christ as a present possession. And in having him, we have eternal life in its seed and reality now. And we shall have life in its fully developed form hereafter. Do you have life? When you come into a room, is there more life? Is there more joy? Is there peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? Is that what you bring into a room? Or do you walk into a room and, man, the babies start crying Everybody gets mopey, right? People will just want to put ashes on their foreheads and start crying and weeping, right? Who are you? John 10.10, 10, that's exactly what Jesus tells us. He says, the thief does not come except to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I have come that you may have life and that abundantly. We should have joy. We should have happiness in this life even though things are chaotic and going crazy. Because this world is not our home. You see, many believers, they're mopey, they're bitter, they're sad because they are so entrenched in this life, they forget this isn't our real home. We're just passing through. This is just a mission field. That's the only reason we're here, right? 60 years, 80 years, 100 years, God forbid, 120 years, right, on this life. And then it's eternity in heaven with him where there's no more crying. There's no more pain. We get to be with him face to face. Matthew 16, verse 26, it says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Again, I hope you're not here and your whole life is entrenched in this world. Jesus did not come to give you a Bentley. 
He did not come to give you health. He did not come to give you that life that people lie about on social media. They only post the good stuff. That's not why he came. He came to give you eternal life. And so many Christians are so consumed with fear that something might affect this current life. And that's not how we're supposed to be living. Right? We're supposed to have built our lives upon the rock. And if we're that wise person that has built our life on the rock, we not only believe in what Christ says, but we actually obey it and we do it. It says we're going to go through storms and we're going to be fine. But the foolish person, they, they might believe it, but they don't obey it. Or they might not even believe it at all. That person's storms will come and their whole home will fall. Again, it's one thing I was listening to a teaching. We might be shaky upon the solid rock and the solid ground, but nothing's going to change. But if we have a false cornerstone, if our cornerstone is our health or our wealth or our 401k or our family being perfect, everything is going to be shaken. And everybody's going to see that. Any good news, any bad news, Bitcoin up, you're the happiest person in the world. Bitcoin down, you're crying and weeping, gnashing of teeth, right? Whatever the case may be. Whether it's your health, right? The six-pack comes, you're the happiest guy in the world, six-packs goes, right? Now you're crying and weeping, right? That's not how we should be. This world is not our home. Finally, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You could just write down for time John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Here, John the Apostle, writing about the gospel of John, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So the reason for the gospels is that we would believe in Jesus Christ, that he's the Son of God. Here, first John, here John, writing 1 John chapter 5, he tells us he's written this so that we would know that we have that eternal life. That makes sense? Gospel of John is so that we will be able to have eternal life. First John is so that we can know I already have this. I already possess this. And there's many believers that are walking around and they're walking around with eternal salvation, but they don't walk around like they know it. They're that mopey and bitter and sad person. And sadly, there's many unbelievers that think they got it, but they don't have it, right? They're not obedient to 1 John. And 1 John, what he wants us to leave here with is an assurance. A, man, I know that I know that if I die today, I'm going to see him face to face. And when we have that assurance, we're able to carry out the mission that our Lord has given us. You see, Christians, they used to be the ones, when there was a hurricane, they would be the ones running into the hurricane to go and help people. Christians, right, bubonic plague, different things like this, the Red Cross gets started and they go to help the sick people. Today it's as if the Christians were the ones running away from everything, right? We're trying to trip the person behind us so the bear eats them instead of us. That's not who we should be because this world is not our home. And if we're constantly, oh, I don't know if I'm saved, saved, not saved. I came to church today, so I'm saved. I cussed out a guy while I was driving out. Oof, I don't think I'm saved anymore. That's not what the Lord wants us to have. I think of a loving dad. Any loving dad or mom here wants their kids constantly asking and questioning, Mom and Dad, do you, do you love me? Do you still love me? Hey, I did good in school today. Do you still love me? Oh, I got disciplined and you told me you love me, but I don't believe you. Do you still love me, right? No, no loving parent wants that from their children. And the same is true of Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that we know that we have this. 
How can we know this? By following 1 John. Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in the light as he is in the light? Are you staying away from the darkness? Do you know that you're a sinner? That you have sinned? If you say you haven't sinned, you make God a liar. So we should be those that we know we're a sinner. And now we're choosing Christ. We're walking in the light. What else does 1 John tell us? That we have a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a mark of a true believer. And finally, that we are obeying his commandments. Again, do you have a love for God? If you're doing these things, you can know that you know. That if you die, man, you're going to be with Christ. Right? Sometimes we have things and we don't know it. And it's going to completely change our day. I think it's only happened to me once in my life. Right? You reach your hand in a new pair of jeans out of the washer. Oh, 50 bucks, right? And you're all excited. You're the happiest person ever. That, that's been in there. Right? Unless you believe God put it in there for you. Maybe that was a miracle for you. But more often than not, you just forgot that you had money in your pocket. Right? But it was there. And now you find out and you're super happy. You're telling everybody about it. Man, I found 50 bucks today, right? And that's the knowledge that we should have. That is the assurance that we should have. Charles Spurgeon, he says, full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it's essential to satisfaction. Again, many Christians, they're not satisfied in this life because they don't know that they know that they're saved. Maybe they don't realize what eternal life really means. That we have a friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ right here and right now. And that's going to be at its peak when we see him face to face. Charles Spurgeon, he continues, says, It's a blessed thing when faith rises as tribulations increase. A little faith may do well for a skirmish with the enemy. But you need the full assurance of faith for a pitched battle against Satan. Fam, are you ready for that full battle with the enemy? Because a tiny bit of faith, yeah, you, may, you, you might get through one bad day of work. Right? But I always think of the man that uh, wrote the hymn, right? It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. How does he write that? Drinking his coffee at the beach? He says, it is well with my soul. No, that's not how he wrote that. His, he, he gets a note that the boat went down that was carrying his daughter's and his wife. All of his daughters passed away. I believe the wife makes it. And now as he's on the boat, on the ship, going to meet his wife across the Atlantic back to England, as he's at the very same part where the boat went down, he's able to write down, it is well with my soul. Family, what type of relationship do you have with the Lord? Do you, do you count the cost? Do you say, Lord, even if this would happen, I'm still going to follow you. Even if that car accident won't happen, Lord, even if I get the bad news, even if the health goes down the tubes, God, I have this assurance that this life isn't my only life. This life is just a vapor. It's just a moment. And then I'm going to live my eternal life. If the worship team can come up and the pastors come up, man, if you don't have that assurance, as we spend time in worship, please come up front and pray with one of the pastors. Ask them, how can I know that I know? How can I have this assurance that no matter what happens, I can be steady. I can be built. I can have my life built upon the rock of Jesus Christ. And maybe you prayed that prayer a long time ago. But you've given your life over to prodigal living. Maybe you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord uh, six months ago or a year ago or ten years ago. And you've been wasting your life. You've been wasting the calling on your life. Man, come up. As that prodigal son and ask, Lord, would you forgive me of my sins? I want to be right with you. 
Or maybe you just want to pray for someone else, someone you love, someone you care about, and you, you just want to come up front and say, Lord, I, I want them, Lord, I need them to get saved. Would you move in their heart? So hey, let's pray. Let's all stand. We'll pray and uh, close in worship. Lord, we just love you. And again, God, thank you that you want us to have that assurance, Lord. Lord, it is a life of faith, God. It is a step of faith. But Lord, you want us to, Lord, know that we know to be able to have the Spirit inside of us, Lord, reaffirming these things, God, confirming these things, giving us that peace that goes beyond all understanding. And Lord, forgive us. Sometimes when we just get so caught up in the things of this life, Lord, we forget this is just a mission field. This isn't our home. This isn't where we're anchored to for all of eternity, Lord. Help us to be mission-minded, Lord. Help us that as we look at others, Lord, we would see souls that are bound to hell, Lord. Just like we once were, Lord. Help us to see that. Help us to share the gospel, Lord. Help us to not be ashamed of the testimony of you. So, Lord, we love you. Pray that you be moving in our hearts now, God. Lord, bind the enemy. Bind our pride from not coming up, Lord. And may we just cry out to you like sons and daughters. So we just love you. We thank you, Jesus, in your precious name we pray. Amen.